On a dark, wooded road, you wander through the night. You're familiar with your surroundings as you step so surely on, but tonight is different. The snap of a twig catches you off guard, and you begin to hear something. It's low at first, but there's something there. You know you can hear it. Though the fear within you courses through your being, screaming for you to run and find safety, something else is there inside, compelling your curiosity and making you hesitate. Something inside wants to know. You're listening to Whispers in the Night. An athletic. Craig Burrows. Intelligent. Well-liked college student goes missing. Family and friends launch a massive search. Weeks or months later, the young man is discovered drowned. In more than 40 cases, the deaths are blamed on a drunken end. On February 16, 1997, Patrick McNeil, a college student who was attending Fordham University in New York, was enjoying a night out. He was drinking and hanging out with his friends at a local college dive bar. This bar, known as the Dapper Dog, is known among students as a popular watering hole for its college atmosphere, loud music, abundant drinks, and for its reputation for serving minors as well as customers who are incredibly intoxicated. Patrick, known to many as clean-cut, good-looking, athletic, and a ladies' man, was out this night lending his support for a peer. He was popular and liked for this characteristic. He would go out of his way just to help others, and he was also known for participating in various altruistic groups and school activities. At the end of the night, Patrick waved everyone off, bidding farewell, and letting his peers know that he was heading towards the nearest subway station to return to campus. He was seen hanging out in front of the bar for a few moments, apparently waiting for a female friend inside, before he decided to head off on his own. He drunkenly wandered two blocks away before turning a corner and disappearing from view. Patrick McNeil was not seen alive again after that. On April 7th of that year, after several search efforts had turned up empty-handed, McNeil's body was found almost 12 miles away from his last known whereabouts, floating face-up in the East River. In the weeks to follow, his death was widely speculated by the community and law enforcement. Some claim that McNeil simply wandered off and accidentally drowned. The manner of his death, however, was eventually ruled as undetermined. The case was reassigned to a decorated homicide detective by the name of Kevin Gannon, whom, with several years of experience examining remains and recovery photos, saw immediately that something wasn't adding up. The condition of McNeil's body reflected that of someone who had only been in the water for a few days, not a few months. For the next nine years, Gannon, assisted by fellow retired detective Anthony Duarte, followed a string of over 40 related mysterious deaths spanning over 12 different states from New York to Minnesota. In many of these cases, a graffiti image of a smiley face has been found near the scene of the crime. Because of this, the case has been dubbed the smiley face serial murders. It is known to most as the smiley face killer theory. It currently remains unsolved. Welcome back to Whispers in the Night. If you're new to the show, 
My name is Sang Pang Duong Det, and this is the podcast that combines fact, fiction, and folklore to sort of dissect the things that we fear most. Now, we're a podcast based right in the heart of the Midwest. It's really good to see you here. So much has happened since season one has ended. For one, I've started a paranormal investigation team, which is crazy. It's pretty incredible, too. We've been working our way toward taking on investigations through these monthly meetings we have and through discussion. In fact, we've also opened up an online community to invite you in on some of the things that we talk about. I'll leave a link in the show's notes if you'd like to join in and, you know, maybe contribute to some of the topics that we'll cover. Now, before we get into the show, I wanted to take a moment to give thanks to some of the awesome people who have made this show possible. A huge shout-out goes to Brennan, who supported what I do here with a cup of coffee. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm sure that this might come off a little silly, but bear with me and I'll fill you in on something called coffee. Now that's coffee spelled K-O-F-I. Coffee helps creators get support from the people who love what they do. And how it works is like this. One payment through coffee is worth a cup of coffee. Makes sense. Which coffee has estimated to be about $3. Think of it as an online tip jar. One payment one time, with no subscribing to additional monthly payments. Well, that's of course, unless you want to. And that brings me to some of my other shoutouts. From the Patreon side of the spectrum, now Patreon is a subscription support service that allows fans to help creators by making monthly contributions at different tiered reward levels, I'd like to throw my hat out to Ronald. He's from the Netherlands. For joining as a monthly contributor toward what I do here. Thank you so much, Ronald. It really means a lot. You know, it's really nice to see people willing to put forth a dollar to help me do what I do here. It takes a few pennies to run this show through hosting providers, my website, and acquiring things like music, stories, guests, and even voice actors. So believe me when I say, with the utmost sincerity, thank you, thank you, thank you. Now, one last shout-out goes to Sammy Wysonen. He's the host of what was once called the Howl Horror Program. It's now called the Howl Program. For continuing to support the show through Patreon. Sammy has been a longtime contributor of my show. He's a fan. He's a good friend of mine. And outside the show, we bounce ideas and thoughts off of each other. He recommends books to me sometimes. If you haven't had the chance, you should really check out his show wherever you listen to your podcasts. I had a chance to appear on a show when it was known as the Howl Horror Program back in August to talk about one of my favorite horror movies, The Strangers. You know, since we're on the topic, lately Sammy and I had been talking about podcasting. We were throwing around these ideas of things to do on our shows when something incredible came to mind. What if I had Sammy on my show? So tonight, I've decided to invite Mr. Sammy Wysonen on my show to talk about a case that hit the Midwest not so very long ago. The smiley face murder, or killer, theory. Hey, Sammy, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Sang, how you doing, man? It's great to be here with you. 
So tonight we're going to be talking about this case that spread its way to the Midwest from the East Coast. It's called the Smiley Face Killer Theory, also known as the Smiley Face Murder Theory. The Smiley Face Murder Theory is a theory that was developed by two retired New York detectives, Kevin Gannon and Anthony Duarte. Now, this case revolves around the mysterious disappearances of college men that led officials to find them as the victims of apparent drownings several weeks later. These mysterious drownings took place between quite a range of states, like I said, starting in New York around 1997, leading all the way to Minnesota. How this theory got its name is from the suspicious smiley face graffiti that was found during the ongoing investigation. Now, having Sammy on the show, I was able to cover some of the details of this case, such as his thoughts on certain aspects of what makes it fascinating. Here's Sammy with his thoughts. Yeah, I'm 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 glad that you brought this to my attention. I had, you know, I've I've heard a little bit about this theory. Um, can't remember the podcast off the top of my head, but I I do tend to listen to a lot of true crime pro- podcasts and watch a lot of Discovery investigates true crime shows and. Um, I remember kind of hearing a little bit about this, but I was kind of confused at first because I thought you were talking about the smiley face killer who was a serial killer that I believe was kind of around the Pacific Northwest and Montana area. Um, so when you uh, corrected me and were like, no, it's 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 the smiley face murder theory, I was like, oh, that sounds – I remember – I kind of remember that. So I was really like happy to kind of start getting into that and researching it a little bit more. It's really interesting. Yeah, it is really interesting, uh, and I'm, I'm glad you can join us today. Uh, actually, can you tell me a little bit about your smiley face murder uh, from your neck of the woods? Uh, no, not really, because <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I, you know I've heard like a couple like podcast episodes about it. I, 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 so I don't know much more than that. I believe, and I might be totally wrong here, but I think it was a um, there was there was a little bit of controversy involved because it was a person who was I think wrongfully accused of, of at first and then or said that they were the ones who did it but it turned out that they weren't the killer and then they arrested a person later on who was and I think the the what made this person the smiley face killer was that um uh, some of the spots they killed had maybe smiley face stickers in trucker bathrooms or something. Like I said, not 100% certain, so um, so I totally could have butchered it. But it was <laughs> it, it was something around there to where I know like there's uh, been podcasts like I believe the Generation Y podcast. It's a really great true crime podcast. If if uh, if any of your listeners don't already listen to it, um, but they had a whole episode about it, and and um, so that's why I automatically thought because at least Pacific Northwest wise, we seem to uh, raise the most serial killers, and just because it's just like a whole bunch of like white people in rain and for whatever reason that just springs up horrible killers so um so it doesn't surprise me that you know there was another one called the smiley face killer and i believe that that was like in the 80s 80s early 90s somewhere around there so which some of this the smiley face murder uh, theory uh takes place during that time as well or at least from different accounts, it seems like some of it takes takes place around the same time. That's so interesting to think about. Well, before we get into any more details, Sammy, why don't you tell us a little bit about you and uh, what you do? Uh, sure, yeah. Uh, so uh, 
I live, like I said, in the Pacific Northwest in Portland, Oregon, and uh, I currently have uh, two shows. Uh, one that uh, is called The Howl Program. It used to be called The Howl Horror Program, and it was mostly at a certain uh, – for the for the first couple years, it was mostly just about horror movies, and I would b- typically take two horror movies from different uh, – subgenres of horror or different like eras of horror and then i tie them together with a theme and i'd talk about those and sometimes i'd have guests on to talk about uh talk about them as well and then uh, more recently what i discovered is that as much as i love and have been obsessed with horror movies for for most of my life it's not I, I can't just talk about those on shows all the time. I realized that in talking with the guests that I would have on, that it was way more interesting, interested talking to them about what they're into. You're, you're a great example of it. You were on my show when we watched uh, The Strangers? Yeah, The okay. Strangers. That was a good time. And it was, it was fun, but some of the funnest, you know, the, some of the funner parts of that episode to me were talking to you about, like, watching you know watching like movies like the Blair Witch Project and being scared because you live in the woods and you were talking about how like you didn't have a wall in your house it was just like clear plastic or something yeah uh, my stepdad was building a wall yeah, yeah. And, and so like and how terrifying that would be in the in at night while watching movies or you know and then you you know talking about some of your paranormal investigating stuff and I mean that I've always been really interested in that as well yeah um I'm a long time uh you know, UFO fanboy and Bigfoot fanboy and grew up listening to Coast to Coast AM and reading Reader's Digest, you know, mysteries of the unexplained and stuff. So you know, the, the the show now is kind of geared towards still still wanting to talk about horror movies every once in a while as well. But then also, you know, tying in some of the things that interest me too, like, like the UFOs or, or Bigfoot or I believe the last episode that I... I, I, I talked to um, uh, Tori Telfer um, on a couple episodes ago who wrote a book about female serial killers throughout the, uh, the you know, the 17th, 18th, and 19th century. So uh, it just it's basically just a way to talk to people and nerd out about things that I like. So um, and then my other show is called Back to Life Podcast, and that's a show that I have been doing for the last three or four years now, three years, I think. And it's with... Uh, a good friend of mine who I've had, um, who have just been around for a long time, and my brother-in-law, and we just we end up just basically talking about like snacks and crappy food and <laughs> and bad TV that we watch. It's 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 nothing like spooky or scary. It's just like fun to sit down. And this last episode that we're going to be airing in a couple days, uh, we we basically just like we bought all of the new flavors of Diet Coke that came out, and we did a taste test. And aside from that. I, I don't do too much. I work at a music company, an online music distributor for independent musicians. So I just Ooh. basically uh, I help musicians around the world uh, distribute and sell and try to make as much money as they can off of their art. <laughs> well, I, I do have to admit that I am a little jealous of your job. I uh, am currently working as a pharmacy manager. And, I you know, I haven't listened to Back to Life yet, but it is something that I will definitely have to do. But kicking it back into gear, getting into the topic here, at the very top of the show, I had this intro by Erica Gwynn. She's the host of The Apex and the Abyss. She kind of went over the 1997 victim from New York, this uh, man by the name of Patrick McNeil. And, you know, this case has so many factors that 
make it compelling. There are so many different twists and turns down these rabbit holes. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think that the majority, like, there, it, it seemed like, so the New York killing, the, the, the New York's there, and it, it's kind of one of the main points of the theory because it was the, the person who was killed in New York was one of the only two people for all of the cases in the theory that it was ruled as a confident, like, this was a murder. So you have all of these cases between Minnesota, uh, you know, M- Minneapolis, and then like in, in New York. Most of it's though it is Wisconsin, Ohio, Iowa, that sort of stuff. It's basically in the heartland. Um, yep. And it's uh, some say that it's started, you know, like as early as '97, somewhere around there. And since then, up until I think like 2014, 2015. There's supposed to be 48 cases involved in this. However, out of those 48 cases, there's only 12 cases that actually are around some of the smiley face graffiti that the that the the theory is based off of. And out of that 12, there are only two of those 12 people that 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 they were confident that the people were actually murdered and didn't rule as an accidental drowning. Now I'm going to throw a little bit of a a, a a curveball here at you and tell you that I've also in in doing some of my research I also found um, some stuff where it seems as though there are cases like this similar similar um, young white athletic college age men uh, being found um, well first going missing and then after a, a certain amount of days being found later in bodies of water. Um, from as far away as um, Ireland and Scotland, and um, some, they just uncovered. Uh, there, a, a book I was reading was talking about how there was a similar thing, similar case like this, in the '60s in uh, Vancouver, Canada, too, I believe. So that's it, it's it's kind of this whole theory is a is a really interesting and but also difficult situation because there's just so much info and so much you know so many cases that are kind of dumped into this thing to where really the things that you need to focus on are 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 the the 12 that act you know like the 12 that actually are around the the graffiti what sammy is referring to here what makes this case so popular and compelling, and has even drawn national attention, has been the infamous smiley face graffiti that has been found around the time or area in which these missing persons' bodies have turned up. Detectives Gannon and Duarte speculated that these smiley face images found in many of the crime scenes were an attempt to taunt police and investigators of this case. In 12 of these cases of these missing college men, whom had been found the victim of a mysterious drowning phenomenon, smiley face graffiti was found nearby where the body had been found, or in some cases where detectives thought the bodies might have been dumped into the water. If you think about it, a person goes missing. Weeks go by without any trace of them anywhere. Then a body is found floating in a river or a body of water not far from where that person had gone missing, um, or was seen last alive, within a seemingly reasonable distance to smiley face graffiti, usually where the body was found or presumed to have been put in water, 
it's hard not to connect lines like this to such details. It's the whole, like the whole point of it is that these 12 cases were combined together because in 12 different cases, the body or or where the body was found or where they thought that the body went into the river was near, and I quote unquote near, smiley face graffiti. Um, some are as close as to being like a, a, a few feet away. Some are as close, quote unquote, as being three to five miles away from either the dump site or where the body is found. I think that you could basically be in any major metropolitan city or maybe even any like kind of small town and within five miles you could probably find a smiley face somewhere so that's where it kind of gets a weird to me to where I, I think that a lot of these cases and a lot of this theory is just kind of throwing as much as you can throwing as much like spaghetti at the wall as you can and hoping some of it sticks you know because it I don't know how much it really matters, you know, that there was a graffiti found even a mile away or even half a mile away. Like, what does that matter? But Now, the major conflict with this case regarding the graffiti that has been found is this. In any place in which graffiti occurs, it doesn't matter whether it's a small town or a major city, smiley faces are among the absolute most common to be found anywhere. You'll find them scrawled onto bathroom stalls, scribbled onto walls or desks, or sharpied obnoxiously somewhere inappropriate. While driving to work, I've counted at least two on the backside of buildings, along with countless others while on train cars while I wait to cross. Though they may seem like this sinister twist to such an incredible and massive investigation, it's worth keeping information like this in mind when considering the different variables in this case. Yeah, they weren't they weren't identical. They weren't um they stylistically they uh, they were very different from each other. Some of them uh you know, they couldn't necessarily even tell what year they were some yeah. of them looked so old that it you know, like it was it could have been there been for there. 20 or 30 years beforehand. The the smiley faces like they don't look anything they're they're not similar really at all and they could they could have been there for years. Tonight's show is brought to you by Midwest Made. Midwest Made is an accessory boutique that specializes in unique hair bows and bow ties for all ages, as well as hats, scarves, cowls, you name it. All products are 100% handmade right here in the Midwest and are, therefore, completely customizable. You can contact Meg, the woman behind Midwest Made, with your custom order or head over to her online shop to see what she has in stock right now. I'll make sure to leave a link right in our show's notes just for you. Have you heard about our microfiction contest? One subject, 280 characters. You write and submit a chilling piece. Why? I just might spotlight it on the show. Now, this month's theme was serial killers, and here is our winning submission. After dispatch lost contact with the first responders, police arrived, finding the house dark but door open. Inside, they found an old couple and all first responders crucified to different walls in the home, the second killing of the kind in West Virginia in the summer of 1992, and now the FBI was involved. That piece was written by at this present dark on Twitter as part of my ongoing microfiction contest. 
such a brilliant piece utilizing only 280 characters. If you would like to submit a piece for my next episode, you can do so by following the show on social media and sending me a message with your submission. You can even email your submission to me at whispersinthenightpodcast at gmail.com. You know what? I'll even give you a heads up for next month. The theme is going to be the Wendigo. And now, back to the show. So the deaths of dozens of young men across 11 states and 25 cities were declared accidental drownings. But now, new surveillance video puts them back in the headlines. It's called the Smiley Face Killer. That case has become front page news again. There's a lot more to it than we know. And we're back. Now, we're going to narrow this case down a little bit and talk about the traits and circumstances that make this very case so unique. When investigating, Detective Gannon and Duarte weren't only following a trail of graffiti found within the proximity of these persons found mysteriously drowned. There's actually a little bit more to it. Sammy Wisenden tells us a little bit more. College-aged, athletic, um... Uh, attractive uh, uh, white men who go to bars in their areas and um, yep. typically um, typically as it turns out when 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 the investigating detectives talk to their friends their friends will always say that it didn't look like the their missing friend drank a lot but all of a sudden they became very drunk and somehow was either kicked out of of these bars or was escorted out or just decided to leave on their own. To recap, these people involved, these men, they fit a profile. They're college-aged, attractive, athletic white males. Some are very sociable or popular and are known to have been very active in clubs and other activities on campus. The profile is just so specific that it stands out. It begs to be looked at a little bit closer. Of course, as many college students do, these men spent time at parties or bars with their friends. It isn't uncommon to find most college students letting loose at some sort of gathering with alcohol. One interesting factor in these cases, however, is that with many of these victims, witnesses have claimed that for the amount of alcohol they had consumed, these men appeared drastically more intoxicated and incredibly impaired when last seen. But there is another piece to this overall puzzle that draws so much attention to this case. A lot of times this these killings only or these murders or accidental drownings only happen during the winter seasons as well. It, it, it's funny because like if it would be one thing, you know, if a if a young man was found uh, in a in a river during like a summer month wearing very little but like some of these guys and and another thing that's kind of weird about it is a lot of these a lot of these disappearances happen on holidays and stuff so you even have like people who like one of the main uh pe- one of the main uh uh young men who was uh a part of this Chris Jenkins uh he was one of the ones that were actually confirmed murdered Chris Jenkins was a victim of one of these mysterious drownings at the time of his disappearance, he was attending the University of Minnesota. It was Halloween night when Jenkins vanished. 
The weather for that day had a high of 26 degrees, which I don't really feel I have to explain in depth isn't exactly the kind of weather you'd want to enter a body of water such as a river or lake in, drunk or not. In many of these cases in which a person goes missing, mysteriously drowns, and is found, the conditions are incredibly cold. Now, it's so easy for officials to rule out some of these deaths as an accidental drowning, but in the end, it doesn't actually line up. One of these very cases, the case of Patrick McNeil, occurred in New York. It was February of 1997 when he disappeared. February. His body was discovered in April of that year, which, even at most, wouldn't be a month advisable for entering water in our region of the world. Going back to Chris Jenkins and his disappearance, though. He went missing on Halloween, so he was walking around dressed as a really, I'm sure, a really shitty frat boy version of a Native American Indian. So you can imagine how little he would be wearing at that point. And then he is winds up being found in, you know, a river in the middle of winter. So it's like you're thinking, well, obviously, why, why would he go and jump? With the, why would why would he go and swim or even be, want to be outside when it's that cold wearing that little? So it's always like weird kind of stuff where their friends are like, I don't know, he didn't seem to be drinking a lot. And then all of a sudden he's, you know, they're totally drunk. They are then escorted out, kicked out of a place or just leave. They disappear. And then typically, you know, they're just missing for an extended amount of time. And then eventually they'll be found in a river nearby um, floating I was going to say just really quickly in a lot of these cases what it, it what it ended up being was a lot of the times these 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 guys would leave a bar and then they would walk a completely different way from when they were supposed to like so whether if their house is one way or their their college was one way or their car was one way they would they would be found or they would be found to be walking the opposite way now some some you know it makes sense that if they're really drunk then you're probably like you don't have your wits about you very well and you're you're just stumbling to me though that that's odd because like i've been really drunk before like mardi gras in new orleans on mardi gras drunk in a city that i've spent some time in but you know it's not like it's a my 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 dive bar next to you know next to my house I was still able to navigate walking across the city while being blackout drunk. So it's very yeah. it's so it's very odd to me for a lot of these things. Like I understand like a bunch of these cases, you know, it's easier just to be like, oh, they were just really drunk and and you know, they tripped and fell or, you know, they they went into the river that way. But I don't think people realize like how good at being drunk college era kids can be. And and how you can still have your wits about you enough, at least enough to know where your car is or where your house is. But I just wanted to throw that in there because in some of these, I know that this, uh, not necessarily in this Patrick McNeil case, but the other one, the Chris Jenkins ones, it was it's those where the, his house is one way, and all of his friends are like, I don't know why he was walking the other way, but he just he just was. You know, there's uh, most of the evidence to these accidental drownings are very weird because it's like they can't tell if the water in their lungs were from the actual drowning or not and then a lot of them come into you know having 
being found on their backs, which is very usually very odd, or they have like certain other weird things that show that they have been on land for a few days dead, and then are in the water. So, it's all very interesting. That's the most compelling part of of all of these cases is there is a, a set amount of time between the disappearance and when the body is found, and then you'll also have search parties looking in the area that the body eventually does be is found weeks before and finding nothing and then they'll go back a couple weeks later and then it will be there so where are these bodies like what's happening is is and it doesn't seem like they're de- they're most of them aren't the corpses are not decomposed enough to where it would just be a body sitting in a river for two months right so what's that's the that's the craziest part about this like what what's happening are these are these guys getting kidnapped and then like just being held and and sitting around and then eventually killed because also there's no there's no real trauma to the bodies either that's why they are that that's why they're uh you know they're said that they're a lot of these are accidental drownings because they're not finding any trauma or any like defensive wounds on the bodies so then you're like, well, then they're not being tortured and held and tortured, really. So what's going on? So, which which to me is almost like creepier because mm-hmm. it's like, unfortunately, you know, I think we're we're definitely in a world now to where it's much more understandable to us to hear a story like this, hear that they have been held and tortured and then killed. It, it's 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 easier to hear that and believe that instead of. No, they just kidnapped this person, potentially held them for a month or two, continued to feed them a little, like they're still alive, but they didn't yeah. really hurt them or anything. And then eventually they killed them and just put them in a river. Like, that's so bizarre. Yeah, it's, you know, there's, but it's that same, it's that same thing all the way through. It's the same type of person. It's the same, it's the same type of victim. It's the same, um, you know around holidays going out with friends to a bar i would imagine that you know just the fact that these guys are are drinking you know but then also like a lot of these cases their friends are saying they didn't really drink that much but then all of a sudden they appear really drunk which may makes you think maybe there's some obviously drugging of the drinks of some of these victims who have been found with ghb in their system but yeah. the human but the brain also i guess produces a small amount of that it's as well on its own so they don't know if there's they that hasn't been let out in the case files i guess how much was found and if that was a trace from being drugged or if it was just the body naturally making it and they just found a trace of it there so you think okay well then that makes more a little bit more sense to me if these if these guys are are leaving a bar and then they're walking the opposite way from their car or their house like if if they're instead of being just drunk if they're drugged too that makes sense it, you know, the, I think the in some of these cases, uh, some of the uh, the the victims' uh, friends who have been around have also uh, noticed that they'll see their friend walking, and they'll also see a car, kind of a car, or sometimes a van, kind of keeping pace with them as well. But they don't really think anything about it at the time. They just see their they're also at you know kind of inebriated as well so they're just kind of like seeing their friend walk and seeing like a car drive by but then they'll think about it later and be like well i guess that car did kind of like follow that person so there are there is some of the a smattering of the all of this little evi- evidence of 
potential kidnapping stuff, you know, potential drugging of drinks, potential following in cars and, and being able to take people. But then there's also just a chance of maybe they were really drunk and, you know, dudes who are drunk, who are college age, a lot of the time, even if you're like in a, a, a Ivy League school, you're still kind of a, a bro. Yeah. And you're and you probably think it might think it's fun to go and try and pee in a river drunk right and then fall yeah. in so who who knows you know it's like they, yeah. they could be totally, <laughs> the, the 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 police could totally be right and these people could be just super drunk and falling in a river and dying i'm sure there are hundreds thousands of people throughout throughout human history who have not being drunk fallen in rivers and died so adding that adding a bunch of alcohol too i mean it's totally plausible that that could happen mr pop <laughs> I just want to thank you so much, Sammy, for being on my show. You gave a lot of uh, great insight. Uh, you know, just as when I was on your show, you, you're a great person to speak with. Do you want to let my audience know where they can find you and what you do? Sure. Well, like I said, thanks, Sang, for having me on the show. It was really fun. Um, thank you for listening to me blab on and on about stuff. It's a really intriguing, really compelling uh, case and um, definitely worth looking into if, you, if you're out there and you want to spend uh, hours just going down a rabbit hole of trying to find videos or trying to find you know documentaries on it or reading a book or whatever it's it, 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 it you can find uh, my shows at uh, both of them at www.backtolifepodcast.com um, they are both on iTunes and Stitcher you just have to either look up back to life podcast or the howl program or even the howl horror program um, I'm on Facebook Instagram Twitter, all of those. Um, very easy to find if you just type in the name of the show. Take a look at these faces. There's some of the more than 40 college-age men who mysteriously drowned. The tragedy spanning 25 cities and 11 states. Two former NYPD police officers, they say that they are all murder victims linked to what they call the smiley face killings. Part of what I feel makes this podcast so unique is the blending of approaches toward a topic that really drive an idea home. With the premiere of Season 2, there was absolutely no way I could give you this episode without delivering part of its essence in an audio drama form. Following the theme of this episode using serial killings, we have a special production in store for you. To close this episode out, we have a story written by Alice Rabble, and in it, we discover why seven people are dead in my neighborhood, and I don't watch movies about serial killers anymore. I've always loved scary things. Movies, books, stories, even nightmares entertained me throughout my youth. I loved being scared. My favorites were about Freddy, Jason, and Michael Myers, the scary men who didn't stop coming for their victims no matter what. 
They terrified me above all others. I never cared for werewolves, vampires, ghosts, or things that seem too unrealistic. Monsters don't exist, but people... People who hurt each other have always existed and will always exist. People always terrified me above all the rest, but I was completely safe when I consumed horror-based media on the couch, in my bed, warm and secure, only the tinge of false adrenaline to let me know I was afraid. When autumn and winter would roll around, I would eagerly sit and watch horror marathons, still safe and cozy as the sun went down earlier and earlier every day. In the dead of winter, we had just over nine hours of sunlight per day. Not that I minded, seeing as I was a horror-obsessed shut-in with very few friends and a small family. I didn't get out a lot, if you couldn't tell, so yeah, 15 hours of being in the dark didn't bother me. That is, until my parents went out of town during my senior year of high school for a work party just an hour away. It was the first time in my life that I had ever been alone in the house for an entire night. I put on a Halloween marathon in spite of it being January. I popped a bag of popcorn and I set up about 15 comforters on my couch to maximize my coziness. For a while I texted my other friends telling them about my slight fear of sleeping without someone else being in the house. Thomas offered to hang out with me for the night, but I knew about his crush on me for ages. I could just imagine how he would cozy up next to me on the couch trying to steal a kiss or a little something more. I decided not to answer. I needed to learn to keep my mouth shut next time, so I settled in for a night alone at home. Around 6.30, after the sun was long gone, I went to turn off the porch light. As I stood at the front door, looking through the reinforced glass window, I thought I saw the outline of someone walking down the road, but I assumed it was nothing. Although I didn't live in the suburbs, I definitely didn't live in what someone would consider the country. My surrounding neighbors each had just under five acres of land, as did my own family. All of our land butted up against each other, so although I had woods behind my house and trees along the edges, I could see the light emanating from their houses just through the foliage. Someone was probably just going for an after-dinner walk, likely one of the older folks who lived near me. So I turned off my porch light, twisted the deadbolt, and pulled all of the blinds. I had popcorn to eat. After half an hour passed, I heard the heavy clomping of footsteps on the back deck. My body tensed. Goosebumps exploded on my neck, and I pressed pause just as a dumb jock was receiving a knife to the stomach. The footsteps moved without rhythm, and the back door jiggled for a moment as somebody knocked. I held my breath, as if remaining beneath several blankets would keep me safe from an intruder. I clenched my phone tightly in my hand, too afraid to even unlock it, afraid of what would happen if I illuminated my face with the light from the screen. In less than a second, the jiggling stopped, just as I heard my neighbor's familiar voice echoing through the night. It was very faint, but I recognized the cadence. They were calling their dog in from their yard. The footsteps quickly faded away as the stranger left my deck and I allowed myself to breathe. I quickly dialed the police and informed them that someone had been trespassing on my property and had tried to break in through the back door. I told them I was alone, but that my neighbor's voice had scared off the would-be intruder. They said they would send someone out to talk to me later that night if I wanted to file a report. I know it was stupid, but I was afraid that my parents would never let me stay home alone again if I filed a police report within six hours of their departure, so... I said no. 
told them I would be fine, and I went back to my movie. Although, I did get my pepper spray from my purse and wedged a couple of chairs under the front door and deck door. I'd also close the storm door on the front, that way nobody could look into the house. I drew the curtains, although I had several lights on throughout both floors, and I sat back down to enjoy my movie. Nearly an hour had passed since my neighbor's voice had scared off the stranger, and I was calming back down again, but... Just as the next twenty minutes of the movie went by, my doorbell rang repeatedly and I heard hands smacking on the glass door. Is anybody home? Please! Please! Is anybody home? Call the police! Call the police! Is anybody home? I immediately recognized the voice as Hannah Wilkins from across the street, a freshman that I routinely drove home. home? I stood up quickly, hurrying to the door and trying to remove the the chair as she begged for help all the while. My fingers were unsteadily twisting the knob of the storm door when I heard her let out a pitiful choking noise. I paused, hearing the thud of a body hitting the ground. Hitting the ground harder than you ever heard in any movie. It's so loud. Hannah begged for a moment, nonsensical words about God and mercy, but it was cut off. I backed up slowly twisting the deadbolt as quietly as I could while sliding the chair back in place in front of the door. I was too afraid to turn on the porch light or go to the window. Instead, I called the police. By this time, it was a quarter until ten. I was shivering in my warm house. I imagined how cold Hannah must be. Imagined how she must have hoped my door was unlocked. But I had left her to die. A squad car pulled into my driveway in less than 15 minutes, but when they got onto my porch, when I turned on the lights, there was no evidence that anyone had been there. Not even handprints on my door. The police, officers Catelli and Meacham, agreed to go question the neighbors anyway. Screaming girls and a mysterious figure walking around the neighborhood was enough to warrant a little poking around. The moment they left, I locked my house back up in seconds. My movie was forgotten. I just wanted to go to bed. As I laid there in my room, the clock reading 10.30 by the time I had changed and readied for sleep, I felt completely exposed. It was as if I were in a wide open field rather than in my small bedroom. The scary movie I had been watching earlier felt cheap and trite compared to the very real fear that coursed through my veins. I double-checked the locks on all of the upstairs windows, made sure the blinds were down. After tossing and turning for some time, I slept for around six hours before my doorbell woke me back up. In my disoriented state, I went down the stairs, rubbing my bleary eyes and pushing the chair out of the way. I made myself pause as I reached for the lock. An authoritative voice outside said, Miss, please open the door. It's the police. We have some further questions. Now fully awake, I flipped on the porch light and opened the storm door. The plate glass door was still between us, locked and closed. Internally, I felt my alarm centers go off, and I tensed. The man on the porch wasn't either of the same officers as I had seen earlier. Something was off about him. He wore no coat over his police attire, and his pale skin was tinged with gray. Miss, either you have to come out or you'll have to ask me inside. He spoke impatiently, yet still his voice was honeyed with persuasion. I immediately wanted to let him in. I wanted an authority figure in my house, and I just wanted to feel safe again, but something about him was off. 
My eyes went to his name tag and I felt my heart bottom out. The name tag said Meacham. Suddenly, his fingernails seemed unnaturally long. His mouth reminded me of a piranha's and his eyes were too black to be natural. I felt dizzy the longer I looked at him. Without another word, I slammed the storm door shut and turned the lock. My eyes watered at the ungodly sound that came from his mouth and being thwarted. I ran through the house, trying to remember where I left my phone. My thoughts were a jumble. What was happening? What was happening? The doorbell chime was going off over and over again as fists slammed on the glass door. The sound didn't help me gather my thoughts. It was just past six in the morning, two more hours until sunlight picked over the horizon, four more hours until my parents would arrive back home. I sucked in a calming breath, gathering my thoughts. I realized that the sound had stopped and I paused, waiting, listening to hear where he was. I wondered if he was still outside of my house, and I jerked when the back door shook with the force of two fists being pounded against it. Let me in, or come out and see. A bead of cold sweat dripped down my face. I started to cry shaking my head although he couldn't see and I wouldn't go outside to see whatever it was he wanted me to see I can smell your fear you smell so delectable delicious like a morning coffee I've never found someone as fear riddled as you I heard something that sounded vaguely like smearing a dull long sound and I realized that he was licking the door I was blubbering like a baby, snot running down around my mouth. I had never felt such intense adrenaline in my life. My stomach was rolling, and with a dull sense of relief, my eyes saw the time hit 6.15, and I knew that the track star who lived a mile down would be passing the house any minute, his routine unbroken in the past three years of the sport. He would have his headlamp on and his warm jogging attire, as he always did. He was passionate about running. He always ran on Sunday mornings. I left the kitchen and ran back to the front room, peeking out the window ever so slightly. I realized that the sound had stopped and I paused, waiting, listening to hear where he was. I wondered if he was still outside of my house. In the distance, his headlamp bobbed. A dark figure darted from my backyard and ran down my driveway at an unnatural speed before pouncing onto my neighbor. His sharp scream punctured the night. I backed up and fell into my pile of comforters, shaking, and I stayed there until finally, thankfully, the cracks of darkness around the curtains turned a warm orange with sunlight. It was 8.30. The sun was rising. Beneath the layers of blankets, my phone buzzed with a good morning text from my mother. For the third time in 24 hours, I called the police. Seven people in my neighborhood were found dead and drained of their blood in that single night. Two cops were dead. One was missing his uniform. Whoever, whatever that man was, he was long gone by the time the sun rose. We were just another stop on a countrywide rash of multiple murders occurring in the darkness of single nights. But I survived. I don't watch scary movies about deadly men anymore. Now that I know that monsters exist, 
What could be more terrifying? Now, because we couldn't get to everything in this episode, we have a special treat for you next week on the podcast. Um, just, you know, it really, I guess they just really bothered me. Like, so there were two, like, really prominent cases in Pittsburgh, and they occurred, like, within a year of each other. Like, just, the, you know, you hear the news, and these young guys go out, and then they go missing, and then they find them dead, and it's like, you know very very bizarre so the second guy that went missing his name was dakota james and then you know i had a friend at work say to me oh this is weird i think it's a conspiracy and in my mind i was like well i don't know you know maybe he was out drinking and he fell and then i thought you know that's kind of ridiculous to think that this guy <laughs> fell into water in winter and died Special thanks to John Ryder. He's my brother. He's also responsible for the show's new intro theme. You can check out more of his music by searching the name of either of his bands, Plastic Me or Empires of Delirium. Special thanks also to Q Dyer and Lindsay Boyd, as well as Henry Schrader, my voice performers on tonight's audio drama, Seven People in My Neighborhood Are Dead, and I Don't Watch Movies About Serial Killers Anymore, written by Alice Rabble. Thanks also to our winning microfiction submission by at this present dark on twitter and to henry schrader again for performing it i wanted to give a huge hoorah and thank you to erica gwynn of the apex and the abyss for performing the opener at the beginning of the show i've been a longtime fan of what you do erica i really really appreciate your support and enthusiasm for what i do thank you so much if you want to know more about any of these amazing contributors I'll make sure to provide links in the show notes. Make sure you check out their work. They're all amazing individuals doing wonderful things, things that they love. Finally, I wanted to thank you, my listeners, for tuning in again for another season of my podcast. I look forward to delivering a terrifying season of fact, fiction, and folklore just for you. If you love what I do, let me know by writing a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also reach out to me by email or on social media. But until next time, thank you for listening to Whispers in the Night. <laughs>